righty. Well, I guess we should start and talk about the future. You know, when I think about the two Debs who are moms and whose sons uh, preceded them in death, I, I don't know what that feels like. And uh, it occurred to me that God does. Uh, because he, the father, experienced sonlessness. It's quite an amazing thing. So if there are some who cannot relate to exactly what you are feeling, can you imagine that almighty God can? He experienced sonlessness when his son Jesus took his place on the cross for us. It affected a separation, don't you see, between parent and child. So he can relate to your pain. Lots of questions. If he's sovereign, why do these things happen? I don't know. I don't know. He's God. He's good. I know he's good because I'm a parent. You're parents, and we want what's best for our kids. I don't think we can out-parent God. I don't think we could love our kids more than he does. I don't understand his ways. You surely don't. We wouldn't propose to give any simplistic answers, but he could be trusted. That's the idea. Anyway, we're glad he has entrusted you to us this evening. I feel bad almost about the topic because um, I'm not sure it's a very encouraging one. I wish it was a little more encouraging, but we're doing a series here, and so we're just going to continue to do it. It's on the future, and the Bible says so much about it. There was a day when the Lord's followers expressed great interest in future things, and so they came out and asked him the question, when will the end of things, the end of the age be? And as you recall, he gave them an extended answer from the Mount of Olives, and so we call it the Olivet Discourse, and it is contained in marvelous fashion in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. And in Matthew 24, in particular, as you recall, the Lord gave them a, a list of very specific indicators uh, of the end of the age as they knew it and the inauguration in particular of this period of time, a seven-year period of time known as the tribulation. Well, it's the great tribulation, a time of intense outpouring of the wrath of God. Why not? He's a holy God, you see. And so he has every right to pour out his wrath during these days on a Christ-rejecting world. And that's who will be left, you see, because the church, as you recall, is not there. They have been caught up to be with the Lord here. And notice the order of these mountain peaks of prophetic revelation. They're not arbitrary. This precedes this, and because of that, we have hope. Oh, we Christians will not experience the outpouring of the wrath of God because he let that, as you know, fall intensely and in unlimited fashion on his own son in our place. So we refer to the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, as our substitute on the cross and therefore our Savior from sin. 
So the Lord gave his followers a number of indicators so that they would know when this period of time will come. And so he spoke to them, as you recall, of famine and earthquakes and deception and persecution and all the rest. And I would like to familiarize you tonight with one more indicator of the beginning of this great tribulation period. It's unmistakable. And you could see it in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, verse 15. Matthew 24, verse 15. Here's what it says. Lord's words. Therefore, when you see, look at the phrase, the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel, the prophet, standing in the holy place, will let the reader understand. So this event, the abomination of desolation, is perhaps the clearest strongest, most unquestionable, most dramatic sign that the Great Tribulation period has been inaugurated. And the Lord said, you should know about this, you see, because Daniel the prophet spoke about it hundreds of years before. And we opened our series with Daniel's words in chapter 9. And so here's what's said in Daniel 9.27. And he, well, the he, as we discussed, is the Antichrist. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. You see, it'll be a covenant of peace, the likes of which we've not arrived at in the Middle East. Nobody could seem to broker a peace deal that works between Israel and her neighbors. And so this character, the Antichrist, who we spoke about in prior weeks, somehow will manage to affect a peace agreement between the parties to the conflict in the Middle East. Well, heavens to Betsy, this will be quite a thing. And Daniel's prophecy indicated, as you recall, it will last one week. And we mentioned that that's a week of years or a seven-year period of time. You see, that's the extent of the Great Tribulation. It lasts seven years. But Daniel went on to say, but in the middle of the week... So if a week represents seven years, the middle of the week would be half of it or the midpoint of that seven-year period. In other words, at the three-and-a-half-year point in the tribulation, this will happen. He, the Antichrist, will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. What does that mean? Well, it means he will interfere with worship in the temple. 
But you say, what temple? There is none standing now. And you know, as I do, on the site of Solomon's temple now stands the third holiest site in Islam, the golden domed dome of the rock, the place from which Islamic people believe Muhammad was resurrected on a horse and entered into heaven. It's such an important sight for them. I just don't think they're going to sort of give it up. So how is this going to happen that a temple is going to be rebuilt there? But don't you see, that's what Antichrist will pull off. I don't know how it's going to be done, but it will be done. And a temple will be reconstructed there. I must tell you that temple, the temple which will stand during the tribulation, is in no wise authorized by God. He didn't authorize it at all. Now, I have to tell you, uh, there's a group of people in Israel today, a very ultra-Orthodox sect group of rabbis, scholars, and others who are very intent on rebuilding the temple. In fact, they have already invested themselves in very extensive study so as to be able to refabricate the garments worn by the priests, high priests and others, and the furnishings used in the ancient temple. In fact, sometimes when we go to Israel, we actually visit their place and you can see some of these reconstructed garments and implements already in existence. So a temple will be rebuilt. It will stand during the tribulation period. And Antichrist will allow the Jews to reestablish temple worship. But at the midpoint of the seven-year period, he'll stop, you see, sacrifice and grain offering. He will interfere with Jewish worship in the temple. And it says, on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. That's the Antichrist. Even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. You see, the Antichrist who brokered this peace will deceive people And during the midpoint of the tribulation, he'll break his covenant and commit commit abominable acts in the temple. Like what? Well, he'll establish himself as the object of worship. And that will be such an abomination for the Jewish people that it will render the temple, in effect, desolate. They won't go into it if going into it means they have to bow before Antichrist. You know, there's a grand foreshadowing of this in the personage of Antiochus Epiphanes. He was your humble, ordinary Joe. Epiphanes meaning appearance of God. He took the name for himself. I. My name is Antiochus. I am an appearance of God. So this was a bad guy. And he came into Jerusalem and desecrated it. He was a Greek tyrant. 
And so he went into the temple in 168 BC, the temple then standing in Jerusalem, and he erected within it an altar to the Greek god Zeus. This is your major non-kosher thing to do. You just, this is not, this was not good. And so he desecrated the temple. And so some people say what the Lord is speaking about in Matthew 24, the abomination of desolation. Some people say, oh, you see, it already occurred in the form of Antiochus Epiphanes in 168 BC. And those people are wrong. Uh, Though that is surely a foreshadowing of the fuller abomination of desolation to come, the one the Lord is speaking of, it's very clear as you read the context in Matthew 24, is future. If you look back on the verse with which we opened, Matthew 24, verse 15, do you see the phrase, let the reader understand? Do you know by saying that he's not speaking to those who were alive in that day? Because the ones he was speaking to didn't have to be readers. They were hearers. He told his disciples specifically what was going to happen in the future. And then he said, let the readers understand. You know he's talking about? Us. A future generation beyond the age of the disciples. And so this was not fulfilled already. Some say, yes, it was in A.D. 70. It's called the preterist position, which is a Latin term, essentially meaning that these prophetic things have already taken uh, place in A.D. 70 when Roman Emperor Titus destroyed Jerusalem, but they're wrong, wrong. You know, they're wrong. I don't know if I've mentioned that to you, but they're just dead, flat out wrong. Antiochus, I mean, uh, uh, Roman Emperor Titus, uh, he, he didn't set himself up in an abominable way in the temple. All he did was burn it down. But he didn't set up a statue of Jupiter or himself. So these are future things, and they will take place after the rapture and the judgment seat, which involves Christians only, after the Antichrist is identified, and during this future time of intense outpouring of the wrath of God on a Christ-rejecting world. And it will specifically take place when the Antichrist, uh, the deceptive peacemaker, breaks his covenant of peace and requires worship for himself. And I could even tell you some more about it. No, I can't, but God did. In the last book of the Bible, to which I'd like to direct your attention, Revelation chapter 13. Revelation 13, verse 1. It says, And the dragon... Who's that? That is Satan. And the dragon, that is Satan, stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I, that's John, I saw a beast. Not actually a beast. He saw a beastly human. Because Satan, the dragon, you will see, will make use of two human 
agents to carry out his evil plan. And the first human agent is identified here. He's called the beast. That's the Antichrist. I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. In the ancient world, the sea was thought to represent mystery and a foreboding things, the unknown. So this beastly human, it says, comes up out of the sea. He has ten horns, seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, crowns, you see, are symbols of political authority. Oh, but it's anti-Christian political authority because it says on his heads, look, were blasphemous names. You see the Antichrist, the first human agent of Satan, will usher in a one-world government, global government, and that is represented by his diadems and such. Then it says in Revelation 13, 2, and the beast which I saw was like, you know, John's just a Jewish guy. He's just hanging out on the island of Patmos and he's seeing these things. It's like a vision. So he's doing his best to describe things that are indescribable. So when he says the beast which I saw was like a leopard, don't you see? The beast was not a leopard. He's just trying to come up with what's available to him in his limited human vocabulary to put bounds to this vision, which 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 really he could hardly explain. So he says, And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power. Satan empowered this human agent, the beast, the Antichrist, and Satan gave him his throne and great authority. You know what's going on here? Satan, did you know this, is a created being? He cannot create He was created. There is only one creator, the God of the Bible. Satan fell from his high position because he insisted, I want to be like the most high God. In other words, I want to replace him. And so he inaugurated this rebellion from the heavenlies and was cast down to earth. And so this Satan, since he cannot create, can only counterfeit what's true. So listen, the Father bequeathed his authority to the Son. The Father gave the Son a throne which is eternal. And the Father gave the Son, the Lord Jesus, authority. And Satan read the Bible. And Satan wants the worship do the true God. So what you have here is kind of a parody, well, of the incarnation. The Son, the Lord Jesus, reveals the otherwise unseen Father. He came and he was enfleshed. 
And we beheld him full of grace and truth. And so Satan, you see, he's a counterfeiter. So now he has his incarnation too. And that's the Antichrist. An enfleshed representative of Satan who has no authority of his own, but who received it from the dragon who's behind the scenes, you see. So it goes on, Revelation 13, 3. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain. Whether it was or not, whether he suffered a mortal wound or not, I don't know. It says, as if he, the beast, had been slain. And his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. And you see, this is one of the reasons why the world followed after him. Good night. There was a demonstration of supernatural healing power, a kind of, hmm feigned resurrection. So Satan has his parody of the incarnation and now he has his parody of the resurrection. Gee, I wonder where he's getting all this stuff. You see? It's a counterfeit of the real article. And then it says in verse 4, they worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage War with him. And so now, see, Satan has his incarnation. Uh, Satan has his resurrection. Now Satan has worship. See it? That's what he wants. Verse 5. There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act, look, for 42 months. That's three and a half years You see how it corresponds perfectly with Daniel's prophecy, which was given hundreds of years before this. Daniel said in the middle of the week, there will be this abomination of desolation. The Lord referred back to Daniel. And then after Matthew, all the way over here, John tells us in the last book of the Bible uh, that the authority given to the Antichrist will exist, you see, for 42 months, three and a half years. He'll be worshipped by the world. He's the political, he's the last human world ruler. Because the Lord returns after the tribulation period. This is the last human ruler of the world. But notice he receives worship. In other words, in the tribulation period, there will be no separation of church and state. You know, uh, if you're there and you don't have to be, you can look Antichrist in the eyes and you could say, hey, 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 separation of church and state. And he's not going to listen to you like it happens today. You you see, he will be the state. (laughs) So there won't be separation of church and state. Revelation 13, 8, all who dwell on the earth will worship him Everyone whose name has not been written, notice, from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. That's the Lord Jesus. If you are a Christian, do you realize God had your name inscribed in his eternal book of life from before the foundation of the world? There came a point in your life when you recognized your need for him. You acknowledged your sin nature. 
And you said, Lord Jesus, would you come into my life? Would you forgive my transgressions? Would you take up your abode in me? Would you adopt me into your family? Make me a son. Make me a daughter of yours. And let me dwell with you forevermore. You caught up with God. But he saw you coming way back down here before time was. And so those whose names are inscribed in the book of life, you see, during the tribulation period, those who come to know the Lord during that period, those are the ones who will not worship the beast. Now, chapter 13 of Revelation, verse 11, then I saw another beast. So that's the second human agent utilized by Satan. The first beast who came out of the ocean, that's Antichrist. Here's the second Another beast coming up out of the earth. He had two horns. Look, like a lamb. Boy, he looks like a lamb, but he spoke as a dragon. Goodness gracious, we got a lot of those kinds running around today. Flowery words, all kinds of promises, and so on and so forth. The solution to the world's problems, peace plans, and all the rest. Lamb-like but speaking as a dragon. And so he is not the lamb, this one, this second human agent used by Satan. In fact, he speaks as a dragon. In other words, he is Satan's man, and his lamb-like appearance is nothing more than a great deception. He's a lie of Satan dressed up as the truth. May God give us discernment today so that we don't make decisions on the basis of how articulate a person is or how attractive a person is, but whether a person is speaking truth. Well, in this day, this second human agent will arise, and notice what he does, verse 12. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. So this second human agent will move the world to worship the first human agent of Satan, the Antichrist. And so this second one has kind of a supporting behind-the-scenes, somewhat secondary role in calling the world's attention, no, not to himself, but to the Antichrist. And folks, you know what we have here? A parody of the Holy Spirit. Satan has his incarnation, he has his resurrection, now he's getting his worship, and he has his counterfeit of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, fully divine, he is God, does not call attention to himself, does he calls attention to the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's just what this second beast is going to do. Point people to the Antichrist. And then it says in verse 13, he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. Can I beseech you to beware of the sign language of Satan? Just because something you see is wondrous doesn't mean its source is Almighty God. All through the Bible, we can see the evil one, the dragon, counterfeiting the legitimate signs and wonders of Almighty God. That something supernatural took place is no in and of itself 
proof that what took place was of God. That it is sensational may be true, but which spirit is it from? I wish the body of Christ would pray for discernment in these troubling days more than everything it's needed. Every looney tune in the world who gets a television program and claims to have raised the dead gets a following. Be careful, folks. Satan counterfeits what's real. Make sure you're dealing with the authentic article and not a counterfeit thereof. You see, because what will happen in the tribulation period, especially verse 14, he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast. Telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image. He tells them, the second human agent tells him to make an image to the beast, to the Antichrist who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And so what's going to happen during this time is there, there's going to be like a rallying point similar to the Tower of Babel of old. And all the peoples in the tribulation will get together in constructing this image to the beast and it will be a rallying point. It will be tribulation religion. I have to tell you, the dragon Satan is not against religion. He loves it. He loves religion. I'll tell you what he's against. When a person comes into a personal relationship with a living Savior. Oh, he's against that. But he loves religions. All kinds of garments and incense and tricks and whatever, all kinds of pomp and circumstance. He loves all that formality. What he hates is when one establishes intimacy with the creator of the world through the Lord Jesus Christ. So there'll be tons of religion in the end. But just like the Antichrist will head up one world government, this second human agent, the second beast, will head up one world global religion and it in essence will be a religion of antichrist he will be worshiped there will be an image and where will this image of him be set up well you see while teaching on the mount of Olives, uh, let me remind you the lord jesus said in our opening verse therefore when you see the abomination of desolation which was spoken of through daniel the prophet notice standing in the holy place. What do you think that is? It's the temple, folks. When you see this abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, and so we know that an image to Antichrist somehow will be constructed and established and set up in the temple, which will be rebuilt in Jerusalem. 
And so there'll be one world government headed up by Antichrist and one world religion and what they will have in common is a blatantly anti-Christian core value and so there'll be an amalgamation, frankly, of all the religions of the world just as long as Christians stop claiming that Jesus is the way. There'll be no place for that rather narrow claim because end times religion will be based on sincerity and toleration and globalism. Why can't we all get along? And you Christians have doctrinal beliefs that affect the separation between you and the rest of us. We just want to get together. We want to pray together. The Hindus, the Muslims, the Jews, the everybody, every Looney Tune clergy in the world. We just want to get get together and hold hands and sing Kumbaya. And you Christians have the gall to mess up our religious party by saying no. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but by him and That claim of absolutism is the cardinal sin in end-time tribulation religion. And that, Lord willing, is what we will pursue in greater detail next week. What are the core values of end-time religion? We'll talk about three. Environmentalism. If I hear the word green one more time. (laughs) Humanism. And relativism. We'll talk about it next week. Why? Because you don't have to wait for the tribulation to see it coming. So, Lord Jesus, we bow before you in our prayer, in our hearts, and we hope in our conduct For you are who you said you are. Many proofs, not the least of which is the resurrection. Lord Jesus, you left us with evidence that you are vindicated by God the Father in that you rose from the dead, a claim which can be made by no pretender to the throne. That's why we serve Not a buried, but a living and resurrected Savior. Lord Jesus, we're distressed even as we speak about this coming time of distress. And yet, we're so grateful that the man who affects this abomination of desolation will himself have a time-limited span. And then will be subject to your holy judgment. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're one who hates sin. You are good. You do all things well. You and you alone are the perfect one. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for saving us from religion, which makes us go through the motions in a routinized, ritualized fashion without any connection to you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming into our lives, for inhabiting us when we invite you to. May it be true of each here today.
that you rule and reign in our lives. And if there be one or more who have not yet permitted you to take over, I pray it would be done tonight. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. Let that be the prayer of the one or two or others who need to be redeemed. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. Grant me your pardon from sin. Thank you more than words can express for suffering and dying in my place. Now change me from the inside. Thank you for loving me and help me each day to love you back. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.